0: Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Tonight we're going to be continuing our series in 2 Corinthians, so you might take your Bibles and turn there. As you're doing so, I want to share a story with you as I, um, feel a need every so often just to remind us of the importance of the Scripture. This summer had the opportunity to uh, do a little vacationing on the East Coast and part of the time that we were on a vacation we went to North Carolina and uh, stopped outside Asheville and had a opportunity to tour the uh, Biltmore House. Some of you maybe have been outside Asheville and visited that great estate. It was built by George Vanderbilt uh, he was lured there by some North Carolinians who wanted him to see this great acreage and when he did it reminded him of some of the scenes that he had seen in Europe. And so for his wife and for himself he bought this uh, large estate of uh, acreage and then he constructed what is really a European palace of sorts. As you tour that facility they'll tell you that it's the largest single dwelling or single family residence in the entire United States. It's it's quite impressive to say the least you know as you move through that that great home if you can call it that you'll find all kinds of antiques and and things of that nature that vanderbilt collected while he was in europe one of the things that kind of fascinated me was he had napoleon bonaparte's chessboard where napoleon bonaparte used to play chess by himself when he was in prison before his death and his bible that he used to read. But uh, one, of the, one of the kind of uh, things that were more of the humorous variety is as you pass through one of these great rooms, there's this large picture of George Vanderbilt himself. And the guide will say now, as you move through this room, just watch his eyes, because he will follow you as you walk across this great room. And sure enough, somehow, I don't know how artists do that, but as you move through this room, everywhere you would go, George would be looking at you, you know, with these beady eyes. And I thought to myself, you know, the scripture's like that. Uh, in, 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 a, in a real sense, this, you know, just like that canvas in some ways looked alive, the scripture is alive. It says it's alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to go places that no counselor, no friend can go, and that's to the very division of soul and spirit can judge thoughts and intentions of the heart because it can get that far. Sometimes I think when we open our Bibles, uh, we can become lax as we do so and not expecting the living God to speak to us. We, we make it more of kind of an intellectual exercise or attend church maybe expecting a a good story or some good songs that might move us emotionally but perhaps sometimes we don't come here and open the Scripture expecting to meet the living God. You know this last week I was reminded of that in particular as I sat out in the audience like you are now listening to Bill as he preached And uh, in the first service of last week, as Bill was going through some of the statements about the Apostle here in the first half of chapter 12, it was as if the room kind of faded for me. Have you ever had that happen? And though Bill was speaking, suddenly it wasn't Bill anymore. But it was the living and active Word of God penetrating to the very core of my being. Speaking to a particular issue that had yet not been really defined. And I was wrestling with it. And just a couple of statements that Bill made that I think God used in making it a living word came in there and began to give definition to this area of my life that I had been wrestling with for definition. Has that ever happened to you? I mean, have you ever sat out there in the audience or maybe been in a Bible study or or maybe even on your own just picking up the Scripture and reading through it and and suddenly it's not just an exercise, suddenly it's an encounter. You know, you need to treasure those moments and realize that that is part of the magnificent grace of God that, that He, in this world, would speak to you. That He would take even the time to do that. And that as He does that, whether it challenge you, challenges you or convicts you or uh, in my case, kind of felt like it solidified me. You need to treasure those moments. Mark them in your Bible. Put a big underline under that verse or in that section of Scripture and, say, and, and put next to it, on this day, God spoke to me. Now I say all that because tonight as we open His Word, we're going to be looking at a portion of Scripture that Paul is going to be sharing himself with us But though he is sharing himself with us and though we really don't know Paul apart from his letters or don't know these people to whom he's written, we've never seen their faces and never will apart from eternity, don't let that cause you to not be expectant. Maybe tonight I'll say something. Maybe not, but maybe so. Maybe something will be said where suddenly it's no longer you and a speaker. It's you and God. You need to treasure those moments. Now, as we look into chapter 12, starting in verse 11, what we're going to find here tonight is Paul really clarifying his right to be a spiritual leader over these Corinthians. If you've been through this series with us, you know starting in chapter 10, Paul began to to, uh, really become transparent before these people because he was losing his, his place of spiritual leadership with them there's probably no other section of Scripture that Paul wrote that is more autobiographical, more transparent. You, you get the feeling that Paul is just pouring his heart out and tearing open his chest and saying, look in here, take a good look, because I really care for you. And yet these callous Corinthians were having a very difficult time giving themselves to his leadership. They were ready to adopt new leaders. In the passage, and you might just look at your outline, we're going to look at three things and then hopefully draw some application to us, but you'll find that this particular passage, starting in verse 11 and running through 21, revolves around three charges, so to speak, against Paul. First of all, that Paul is an inferior apostle to these new teachers that the Corinthians have embraced. Paul's going to answer that. Secondly, that Paul is in this for some kind of self-gain, that he's greedy, uh, that his ministry there is really a ministry to bring these Corinthians under control so that he can use them for his own self-elevation. He'll answer that. And then finally, uh, that Paul is defensive in these chapters and that he can't take criticism. Paul's going to answer that as well. I think, though, before we we look into these and see Paul pull back his chest for a moment and look at his heart maybe we ought to just take one moment and in light of what I've said in leading up to this message we might just bow, have a moment of silence and you might ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Let's do that. Lord, we're unworthy of an encounter with you. Quite frankly, it amazes us that you would even take the time to communicate with us and yet we have this very precious book that you protected over 2,000 years to put into our hands so that we could have a guidebook so that we could not guess at what you said in a moment but we could know what you have said we also thank you Lord for your spirit who can speak these words in a much more personal way can judge our thoughts and intentions, can speak to our heart like no human being could. My prayer as we begin to look at this passage is that you might use a moment here in this next few moments to touch each life so that they would leave here feeling that you have engaged them in a personal way. Thank you, Lord, for your desire to do that. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Sometimes it's good for me to do that because it prepares me and hopefully it prepares you in what we're about to look at. So let's begin in verse 11 where Paul begins to address this issue of inferiority. He says in verse 11, I have become foolish. And of course he said that all the way through these chapters as he's had to boast. And even though he said boasting is not profitable, but he's done that. He said, You yourselves compel me to do it, though. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. You know, I believe deep down these Corinthians knew that Paul was the real thing. The power of his life, in many cases, if one were just to look at him in an objective way, was, was irrefutable as a man of God. And yet, you can't help but ask the question, knowing that, why would these Corinthians not embrace him as their teacher and as their leader? Why would they look to others to embrace? Now, you may be thinking, as maybe I thought, as I went through this passage at the first moment, hey, if I would have been in Corinth, I wouldn't have taken on these false teachers. I would have been loyal to Paul. And I began to think about that and... As I move through kind of my contemplation, I begin to see, maybe not. Maybe I'm too hesitant, I mean too ready to say I would pledge my loyalty to Paul. And the reason for that is oftentimes in our day, and certainly it was in the Corinthians day, we think of spiritual leadership as synonymous with a person who is powerful and attractive and and charismatic and in in stature and in and in image, he has flowing uh, 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 use of his tongue that captures people's imagination he can entertain and challenge at the same time. And we often think those are spiritual leaders. And yet Paul was none of those, was he? Paul was not charming. Paul was a guy who was radically challenging in the way he addressed people. He he came in and he had such a, a desire and enthusiasm to see people live at a supernatural plane, and, and not to live as others live. And for those who want to be comfortable, Paul was a threat. So he wasn't charming, he was challenging. And Paul wasn't attractive. Paul was very unimpressive. We learned in chapter 10 that that, that's exactly what the Corinthians said about him. His, his looks are unimpressive. Paul was not charismatic in any way. In fact, I think to you and me, even as a speaker or as a personality, he'd be rather, well, he'd be rather dull. He says he's a nobody. Do you see that in verse 11? I am a nobody. Now, is he just kind of saying that to elicit sympathy? No, I really don't believe so. I believe, as Paul looked at himself, uh, he didn't see anything, at least on the surface, that would necessarily commend him to people, that would make him stand out in a crowd. And So I began to think, if Paul were in this pulpit with us, and yet right across the street there was somebody else who had tremendous stature and charm and vigor and energy and he could entertain and make us feel good. Whose church would you go to? A little more challenging then, isn't it? Makes me a little bit more sympathetic with the Corinthians as they com- compared these, these two groups of leaders, Paul and these others. Paul says, I am a nobody. But he balances that statement in verse 11 by saying, but I'm not inferior to those eminent apostles. That, that is... If you've got a little marginal note like I do in my Bible, it says those super apostles. I may not be super on the outside, but i tell you what I am. That's verse 12. I am a true apostle. And I think he's comparing these two types of apostles with these two adjectives, super and true. We have the same kind of pastors today, same kind of spiritual leaders in our world. Those who are super those who are true, the one who looks right and the one who is right. The super-apostle or super-leader is one who has this sparkling kind of image that just naturally draws people to him. The true apostle, the true leader, has spiritual depth that draws people to him supernaturally. A super-apostle would be one who would be easy to embrace, and by the way, I'm not saying that anybody who's attractive or can speak well is somehow not spiritual either, not going to that balance, but we are given, even in our age, aren't we, to be drawn and to make quick assessments of people who have charm. But a super-apostle would be easy to embrace, that's why the Corinthians embraced him. He He and these, whether it's one or more, these people were fashioning a religion in Corinth that I guess you could say was fit for the flesh. It didn't challenge the flesh. It made the flesh feel comfortable. It didn't deal with sins. It kind of swept sins under the rug. But you know, if you were around the Apostle Paul, a true Apostle, it would be a little bit scary, I think. And the reason I think that is because he wouldn't want to uh, fashion his religion to fit the flesh. He would be out to crucify the flesh. If that wasn't true of you, that would be a threat. So how could Paul measure up to these flashy counterparts. I think he did so in two areas, and it says it in verse 12 and 13. There were two outstanding features of the apostle. First, he had real power in verse 12. Notice it says, I could do the signs of a true apostle, and I performed them with all perseverance, that is, signs and wonders and miracles. There was something Paul could do that these other false apostles couldn't do. And that's been true, by the way, of all God's spokesmen. They are always able to do some kind of authenticating acts of power that attest to their authenticity. If you think back of Moses, when Moses came into the children of Israel after his wilderness journeys, he didn't walk in and said, hey, God has called me back to set you free. Just follow me. And everybody said, great, we'll follow you. No, it didn't work that way. When he came back and said that, he had to prove God was with him. And so through those series of plagues that he brought on the nation of Egypt, he demonstrated that he, in fact, was a prophet of God. Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? He didn't just stand there and say, I am the true prophet of God, and these guys are all false. No, they had demonstrations of power, and Elijah exceeded anything those 400 bell prophets could do. Same way with Jesus. When Jesus came, there had been others before him and after him that came saying that they were the Messiah. Why was Jesus any different? He was different according to Acts 2.22 in that he could do works that attested to his authenticity. He even told the Jewish religious leaders around him, if you don't believe me, at least believe the works that I do. How can you not? See, they'd never seen anyone take somebody with a leper's hand that was dripping flesh and go, be healed, and suddenly it was healed. Now we have people on TV that would like you to believe that they can have that kind of power although they keep it with pains in the side and those kind of things. See, in Jesus' day, it wasn't covered up. It was very visible. It was something special to stand in front of a tomb where a guy was rotting inside because he had been for a number of days and say, come forth. And he would come forth hopping out with his burial garments on. That's what Jesus did. That's what set Jesus apart. And by the way, that's what set the apostles apart. That's why you have their letters in this book and not the super apostles' letters. Did you know that? Those guys wrote letters too. Why do we have Paul's letter and not these? Well, it was because Paul could do signs and wonders and miracles and they couldn't. He had the outstanding feature of real power. By the way, you might just jot down Mark 16. Sometime you can read back through Mark 16 where Jesus said, When you go out, you apostles, you're going to do attesting miracles. And they talks about casting out demons and raising people from the dead and healing people and drinking poison and not dying. And if you read through Acts, as those men went out, that's exactly the events that took place that confirmed their message. That's what set them apart. And Paul said, I did that among you Corinthians. There's a second thing that he did as well that the false teachers couldn't match. They couldn't match him or they wouldn't match him in his integrity. Look at verse 13. It says, For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. (laughs) You know, it's amazing. He's apologizing for not asking them for financial support. Isn't that amazing? See, he went in to this city that was so materialistic and where there was so much lack of integrity that Paul thought, I can demonstrate to these people how much I really care for them by not being a burden to them. And by burden, he meant a financial burden. So he worked and ministered among them without charge. And yet they had never seen, or at least in this day and age, they had never seen real integrity. And so a person acting this way actually made him suspicious. And so Paul feels now he's got to apologize for it. Let me help you feel that a little bit more. You get these these, uh, things in the mail from magazines that say you're a winner of a million dollars. You know? And uh, you think, when you got the first one, you probably ripped it open. I think I may have won. And you get into the envelope and inside it says, if... And then it lists about 12 things you need to do and maybe you have a one in a billion chance of winning. And we get those every year from different magazines. What if the real thing one day came? You know, I think I would be so jaded by that time that even if the million dollars was inside the envelope, I'd probably just pitch it. You know, thinking, nah, couldn't be. Well, you know what? These people had become so jaded in Corinth about what was true integrity, that they couldn't recognize the real thing when it came along. That's what's happening here. So when Paul came on the scene and said, hey, I'm not going to take advantage of you. I don't want to be any real burden. I just care for you. Everybody kind of looked at him like, come on. What's up your sleeve? You know, you know, what's the hidden agenda here? That's why down in verse 16, by the way, if you'll just notice, he says, I did not burden you myself and then he makes this statement that maybe some of you wondered about nevertheless crafty fellow that I am I took you in by deceit you know he's actually quoting them see I didn't become a burden to you but you're suspicioning that I'm a crafty fellow and by coming in and saying I'm not going to be a burden to you that in reality what I'm trying to do is trick you I've got this hidden agenda and I'm going to finally spring it on you well that's what the Corinthians These false Corinthian teachers were probably saying about the Apostle Paul. But you know, Paul goes down through this and he said, that's just not true. Show me one time I've taken advantage of you. So was Paul inferior? No way. He might not match up on the surface with these super apostles, but when you scratch past the surface, we find this nobody has been elevated by the power that's been given to him both in what He could do and in how He could live. It's an amazing thing. You know, when I thought about that, I, I said to myself, you know, today, what we don't need any more of is super Christians. What we need is true Christians. Don't you agree? Not the ones who look good and they've got, they're dressed right and they've got diamonds on their fingers and they, you know their whole world is together and they're going to tell you about the power of God but just kind of the ordinary people who can outlive the world. That's what we need. So Paul wasn't inferior. Then there was a second charge. There was the charge that he was seeking personal gain in verses 14 through 18. I've mentioned already one of those about being a trickster, but let me just read those passages for you. Paul says, Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you, For I do not seek what is yours, but you. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Boy, I wish you wouldn't have said that. (laughs) And I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. They don't believe that, though. If I love you the more, am I to be loved the less? But be that as it is, but but be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. I'm not a trickster. Verse 17, certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you. Self-seeking? Just tell me one thing that I've done that's self-seeking. That's what he's saying. Verse 18, I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Of course not. Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Certainly we did. Paul wasn't taking advantage of them. You know what's amazing though about this passage is the first line of verse 14 where he says, Here for this third time I am ready to come to you. You know, for me, that in itself is amazing. I mean, Paul has felt so much rejection and abuse from these people. They, he has reached out and sacrificed to them, and yet they have no sense of loyalty or devotion to him, it seems, at all. They could just kind of lot him up like a Kleenex and throw him away now that they've used him with, with no thought of him afterwards. Boy, that, that must have hurt Paul Deeply to know that. And you almost want to ask yourself, well, then, if that being the case, this great spiritual apostle, if that being true, why did he stick it out with them? I mean, why does he want to go to them and stick his head in the furnace a third time? You know, one time, shame on me, the second time, shame on you. And, you know, it just kind of gets to, you know, it's like being slapped in the face. Is he a masochist? What's going on here? It's a good question to ask. It's the same question I bet some of you have asked about whether you should go on with somebody that you've been ministering to. You know what? People are messy. When you start ministering to people, you find that they're a mess. (laughs) And it's so easy to become discouraged as you reach out to them and try to love them and do things for them and sacrifice yourself for them again and again and again and they don't seem to appreciate it and they keep fumbling your spiritual advice and and not following through. And you begin to grow tired and, 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 and maybe they bring a lot of pain in your life and you start asking yourself, why am I doing this? Have you ever asked that? And you want to pull in your horns and fold up your tent? Get away from them. How could Paul... Keep reaching out to these people after what he, how he had been treated by them. You know, I couldn't help but think happiness for Paul would be seeing Carrot in his rearview mirror. You know, and his foot on the pedal. You know, just like that. That would be happiness for this apostle. Yet here he says it a third time. I'm coming to you. Why? Well, the answer is in verse 14. It's because Paul had a special kind of love for these people that is supernatural. But we do see some evidence of it on a natural plane and he describes it as a parental kind of love. Boy, you think about that, that kind of helps me as a pastor. See, a parental kind of love is unyielding. It deals with messy kids that many times don't appreciate you and, and, uh, and don't give you back what you've given to them. It's not an equal situation, tit for tat. And yet a parent just keeps on loving despite the mess. That's the kind of love Paul had for these people in Corinth. Was it fair? (laughs) No, it wasn't fair. But who said ministry would ever be fair? And yet I can sometimes get discouraged because there's a tendency to want to keep score. You know, I've done this for you. What have you done for me? Paul didn't keep score. Paul had this kind of Parental passion for these people. It's like the uh, mom who came down after breakfast and found a note from her son on the kitchen table. And on this note was written, Mowing the lawn, $2. Drying the dishes, $1. Raking leaves, $3. Cleaning the garage, $4. Total owed, $10. Your son... And when the son got there that afternoon, he found a note on the door. Now you're laughing because you think the mom got back at him, but listen. She wrote, ironing clothes, nothing. Mending socks, nothing. Cooking meals, nothing. Baking cookies, nothing. Bandaging cuts, Nothing. And then she signed it. Love, mother. Is that fair? No, it's not fair. It's love. And what you just felt is what Paul feels for these Corinthians. He's got this parental passion for them. And he loves them. And yet he mentions even in the passage, I loved you the more. That's verse 15. Am I to be loved the less? And here's what's hard for a person who ministers. The answer is, yes, you will be. But that's the price of being a minister of the gospel. That's unfair, but it's also right. And I'm so thankful we have a church. I mean, I wish you could have heard the sharing all day. We have a church of people who are willing to pay that parental price to love others in this body who are messy. That's what makes it so fun to be here. Now let's go on and look at verse 19 because the charge is that Paul can't take criticism that all these statements that he's made in these last three chapters is that he's defending himself. And yet notice what he says in verse 19. He says, all this time you've been thinking, all this time that I've been talking through chapter 10, Through this chapter, that I've been defending myself to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and it's been all for your upbuilding, beloved. You see, Paul is saying this boasting that I've been making, talking about myself, trying to woo you back to me, that's not because I feel like I need to build myself up in some way. It's for you. You see, I'm a nobody. And a nobody doesn't need to build himself up. A nobody wants to love you. So all that I've been saying is to win back you. It's to convince you that I'm good for you and rightfully fit to be your spiritual leader, even though I'm not attractive, and even though I can't speak well, even though I'm not charismatic or charming. I'm yours. God's designed me for you. It's for Europe building. You know, oftentimes I, I have felt that in some regards when, for one reason or another, someone has called me outside the church. They've met someone in the church and they've heard about us and they've called desperate for some help and they've come in. And uh, we've met like on, on a late afternoon, uh, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, and I've counseled them. And uh, because they're not in the church when they've gotten up from the table, Many times this has happened, they pulled out their checkbook and said, what do I owe you? And I go, you don't owe me anything. I mean, if I was in it for money, I wouldn't be here. (laughs) But I'm here because I want to make a difference. And they're not sure how to receive that. Because they just took an hour or two hours of your time. But you know those same people you can begin to meet with because maybe you you really start to invest yourself and you meet on a Saturday and you meet on an evening you take some time away from your own family to try to move them along and let's say it's a couple and somewhere in there you begin to touch on some very sensitive issues to help them resolve this conflict now that's when it not, doesn't become charming anymore but challenging and and many times those people will all of a sudden do a double take and all of a sudden to protect themselves, kind of like the Corinthians, they begin to not see themselves as the problem, but now you're the problem. Yeah, they're in counseling, but all of a sudden there's this tension between you and them. And why are you, getting, why are you saying these things to me? You know, I, I'm not like that. And they begin to get defensive and they want to sweep a lot of things that they've done under the rug. And let's kind of keep this thing comfortable and warm and fuzzy. And if you begin to press, all of a sudden you become the enemy. And you're going kind of like Paul, you're wanting to rehearse. Now, now wait a minute now. Why am I the enemy? I, I've been meeting with you for nothing and giving time and taking away time from my family and doing all this stuff. What is in it for me? But they've created you into thinking that there's some trick you're trying to control them. And I want you to know if you minister to people, that's going to happen. All those efforts are going to be turned back to you at times. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that happens all the time. Sometimes there's tremendous fruitfulness from these times. But I know what Paul's talking about here. Because I've been there. And given all that for nothing, and then been made the enemy. Well, Paul knows that all this effort that he's taking with these people in writing this letter may be futile. Look at verses 20 and 21. In fact, because he's fearful that it may be futile, he writes these words. He says in verse 20, I'm afraid that perhaps when I come to you, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. And perhaps there may be these things, strife and jealousy and anger and tempers and dispute and slanders and gossip and arrogance and disturbances. And even worse, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past, these people I've converted, brought to Christ, but now have not repented of the impurity and immorality and sensuality sensuality which they, they once practiced. You know, we mentioned in verse 12 that those were signs in verse 12 of a true apostle. You might just make a note in your Bible. In verses 20 and 21, this is the signs, the distinguishing marks of a dying church. Because you will see these marks in any church, even today, when it starts to die spiritually. You know, when when a person in the body, let's just take one person in this body, when they come to a place where they hear a word of gossip or they start a rumor, it's like this is the heart and the life of God it's like taking a spear and sticking it right there in that heart. And the blood, the life begins to flow out of it. Just a little stream with a little stick. But then if the rumor passes to the next person, the next person, then they begin to stick. That same heart of God, His church, and the life begins to drain away, begins to spill away from that heart. When you read Shakespeare and you find that Brutus in that cataclysmic moment, decides that he's going to take things into his own hands and he stabs his friend Caesar. He didn't just kill a friend. It just wasn't an isolated instance in the empire that was going to go away. He not only killed his friend, but he killed the empire that he loved. Law and order was now thrown to the wind and when you think you can, you know, there's kind of the church like an institution and, and you feel kind of, you know, lackadaisical about things like gossip and slander and disputes and those kind of things and you get sideways with somebody and yet you don't feel any need to, to make it up. Or you hear some word about someone but rather than, than go to the source and find out that it's true or not, You just simply pass it on and think that that's just kind of a private thing between you and the other person. It's not. You're not only hurting someone else, but you are killing this church that you love because you are the church. Sometimes I go fishing, and one of the little things that I have is a little minnow carrier, and it's got all these little holes in it. You put the minnows in it, and when you lift it up, all the water comes streaming out in a hundred streams. And in just a moment, all the minnows are down there dry, flopping around. I, I think of the church today somewhat like that. God is wanting to hold up His church as a banner. But when He holds it up, it's been perforated so much by things like this. In verses 20 and 21, that all the life quickly just drains out of it, and all that's left is a bunch of people down at the bottom flopping around in chaos. Is that not a graphic picture? (laughs) What kind of twisted mind would think of an illustration like that? (laughs) And what kind of people would sit before a twisted mind and listen to that? And yet that often is the way the church looks. When it should be held up and it should be a full heart, full of life and vibrancy. So there is no sin that's innocent. None of these marks are things that just kind of come and go in the night and don't have repercussions later on. It drains the life of the church away. Let's not be a church like that. So what can we learn from a passage? At the bottom of your outline, it says Corinthian perspectives for our personal consideration. What I want to do in closing is just put Paul's shoes on for a moment and the Corinthian shoes on for a moment. Two different perspectives and see if we can learn by that. First of all, um, let's put on Paul's shoes. You know what Paul tells me in this passage? He, He tells me that an authentic ministry demands more than human effort. You know, he said back in 2 Corinthians 3, not that we are adequate in ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. And here in chapter 12, he said, I'm a nobody, yet God has elevated me to a place. He's made the difference. He's made me a true apostle with his signs and wonders and miracles wrought through me and the integrity that's built into me. That's what's made the difference. I can only do the possible. He can do the impossible. And I say that because some of you are involved in ministries. We have a lot of different ministries going on in this church. Be careful that you don't try to develop that ministry on human effort alone. If you do, you're going to burn out. You're going to say, I can do it. I can just push a little harder. I can just work a little more. I can rise up a little early. I can go to bed a little later. The psalmist says, that's not the way to do it. You need to trust the living God to bless His beloved in His sleep, to make up the difference, to answer prayer, to give advantages, to bring gracious, unexpected blessings that advance that ministry. Yes, we're to work, but it's not all us. And so if your ministry doesn't have some of the handprints of God on it, you need to draw back. You need to pull back, not work harder. You need to pull back and realize this can't happen unless God adds His part into this ministry. Secondly, I think Paul has helped me learn in in maybe a fresh way that I need to walk the extra mile with the unlovely. I know it's not fair (laughs) to have to do that, and I know in, in many ways that um, whatever effort I take will never be fully appreciated here on earth, but it will be appreciated later. People who reach out to the unlovely, who sacrifice and expend themselves, their resources, that they could use on themselves. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about energy and love and those kind of things. That they could spend on themselves. People who expend themselves for others are demonstrating not the super church, They're demonstrating marks of the true church. There's an anonymous poem that goes as follows. People are unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Do good anyway. The ministry you do today will surely be forgotten tomorrow. Minister, anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank, anyway. People really need help, but many will attack you when you do help. Help them, anyway. Give the world the best you have, though you may get kicked in the teeth. Give the world your best, anyway. It won't be appreciated now. And it is a magnanimous act of faith by a true Christian. But it won't be forgotten. Not in God's agenda. Well, those are some things wearing Paul's shoes. Now let's just change and wear the Corinthians' shoes for just a moment, too. When I think about the Corinthians, some questions come to mind. The first question is this. Are we seeking to mold this church out of biblical ideals, or of personal biases. You know, as we grow larger and things change and all that, it would be so easy to start thinking of the church in terms of what we want and how it's going to make us comfortable and how it's going to meet our needs and we're going to to vote and give and those kind of things to those ends and it becomes kind of a personal agenda for this church how wrong that is. The key to any local church, to any good church, is that people are pursuing the biblical ideals. We're not asking you to relax, even though we've been at this 12 years. We're actually asking you to step forward, even to a higher plane. In bringing on Season of Life pastors, we're not bringing on guys who are going to let you, who have shepherded in community groups, say, I'm not needed anymore. They've got a pastor for this congregation. No, we're bringing that season of life pastor to help that shepherd even do a better job of the work of ministry. We're not drawing back. We're stepping forward. Secondly, I can't help but ask the question as I think about these Corinthians, do we make it enjoyable or grievous for those who seek to lead us spiritually? Spiritually. Are you a pain to your community group leader? Really? I mean, when he sees you walk in the door for the evening, does his, does the pit of his stone just kind of draw up in knots, or does he break out in a big smile? You know, are you always grumbling or never satisfied or hard to lead? Somebody that's just kind of a rub? with other people. The Corinthians were that way. Maybe you're that way in the youth group or in the missions or in the women's ministry or in counseling or whatever else it is. Are you a person that has has not realized how much uh, your attitude and, and uh, your actions impact the rest of us? When people see you, do they think the word true christian or do they think the word corinthian when they see you come see great churches are not just built by good leaders great churches are made up of good followers and every one of us at some level in the church play the role of a follower are you a good follower who makes it a joy to lead Are you grievous? Somebody that just grates against those who lead. That's a good Corinthian question. And then finally, let's go back to verses 20 and 21 as we close. Because here in this passage are some of these spiritual life-draining activities. And I want you just to look at that passage, and I'm going to make a few statements as you look at that and ask the Holy Spirit to say, are one of these true of me? I mean, are you nursing a bitter jealousy towards someone in this body that you have not resolved? If you are, this is the mark of the dying church, jealousy. Or is there some unresolved dispute between you and someone else so that when you see them coming in the church, you turn away? That's a mark of a dying church. Are you taking the opportunity to pass on some juicy slander because it's fun you taking advantage of someone sexually here and yet you can sit here from week to week thinking that's not hurting anybody oh yeah it is you just took a spear and you just stuck it in the life of God's church and the life that was to be there is now spilling out on the ground those are good questions maybe the best question is are you willing to resolve those and let them go that's the most important question I said at the beginning that as we picked up this word and opened it we were to be expectant that God might speak to us I hope he's spoken to you tonight and if he has as we bow our heads and finish the service then you might say Lord I heard your voice and I thank you for being gracious to me and I'm not going to walk out of here and forget this one word that you you drew an underline under by your spirit. But I'm going to see that as graciousness on your part and I'm going to do the better thing and I'm going to take it and I'm going to accomplish the task you've given me to do. So let's close in a word of prayer and then you can be dismissed. Father, we're thankful for your living word that's active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our soul and our spirit, our hearts. Father, my prayer would be that if you spoke to anyone here about any subject, that they might not walk away and treat as common, as just something every day, the experience they just had. But they would star that moment in their Bible and they would say, God spoke to me. And if I heed it, it is not a word that would destroy me or hurt me. But it is the word of life that can heal me and move me forward. I pray that you have encouraged many. Challenged many, maybe healed some. But Father, thank you for this hour of worship where we have enjoyed your presence. Now we ask that you go with us and may we live not as super Christians but may we live in the model and the example of the Apostle Paul. May we be true Christians. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.